Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. It's a big day today because we are doing one of our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes programs, which means for the next half an hour or so, or at least probably the full hour, because we're going to go a little bit more than a minute for each one of them, uh, you're going to hear about some amazing research from around not just this country, but around the world. We have people from three different continents this time around on the 20 and 20 program. And uh, we're going to be talking about science all over the place. So some great content coming up. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane, if we haven't met before, and this is a science show. You've got about an hour of science coming up, and it's going to be fast-paced, so you need to get ready for it. And thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Now, we have our 20 PhDs. There's actually 21 of them. I couldn't say no to any more people. We had so many people apply that I took in 21. So for those of you who are keen counters, you'll realize that it's a little cheat there on my, my part, but sorry about that. But uh, first up, we have... Barack uh, Abuznajad. Good morning. Uh, you're from the University of Technology, Sydney. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, it's great to have you on. You work on the the sort of idea of artificially changing uh, parts of our ear when we have problems and this mimicking the biological functions. Tell us, tell us about that. What are you doing? Yeah, um, my PhD is about developing a bone sparkless viewer implant by uh, mimicking hair cells using uh, gravity um, sensors to help people who suffer from any kind of vestibular dysfunction. Wow. And and do you have problems with the materials you put into the ear? Like, Because I know our body hates foreign objects. Yeah, of course. All the um, material that we choose should be uh, biocompatible. So we have done all the... Uh, everything quite compatible hmm. and um whereabouts are you in the phase of sort of testing and so forth are you starting to implant in sort of animal models or people uh no not, not yet but uh we prepared a, a proof of concept uh, implant so far and uh we uh, just um we just um, compared our results with the um, biological results and it shows very promising. Excellent. Now, before I let you go, you're, you're dealing with the, the little hairs in the ear, aren't you? How, how big are they? How small do you have to make them to mimic them? They are very little, like sort of um, hundreds of microns. Yeah, so hundreds very of microns, little. that's a, what, a, a couple of hairs width, is that? Am I getting that yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they're very small. So um, so we usually use very micro scale uh, sensors to be able to mimic all those, you know, those hair cells. Fantastic. Brock, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. And good luck on your second Thank PhD. You. Big effort. Second one. <laughs> Thank you very because, much. Doctor, doctor, well done. Um, now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. next up is Caitlin Forster from the University of Sydney. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. Now, uh, now let me see. You are working on this amazing thing where you're trying to mess with bees' minds. I love this. You're using, you're using this thing called the decoy effect. Tell us what that is. Yep. So the decoy effect is essentially a way that we use in marketing to trick people to buy certain products. It's essentially just using the products that they have available but that, and then shifting your behavior to buy the ones that we want you to buy. 
So we can essentially do the same kind of thing with a bunch of animals, and I'm testing if we can do it with bees. So are you telling me that we're basically as... And I, don't, I don't like using the word stupid, but as easily manipulated as a bee by these marketing tools? Well, we definitely are, but we also know that slime molds, which don't even have brains, can be manipulated by these techniques. So we can't we can't get too upset by that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And why would we want to do this with the bees? What what do we what do we achieve? So there's some really cool stuff in terms of long-term pollination optimization, which is really cool. But there's also just some simple simple things like just understanding how flower choice occurs in bees, particularly in cities where there's lots of flowers available and bees have to pick certain flowers. It might impact the seed set of the flowers that are planted in community gardens or in urban gardens where there's lots of things available. So it's interesting to know how this um, these decisions are made. Yeah, presumably what, what you'd be able to do then is plant a, a third or a fourth or even a fifth type of flower to make sure the bee's choosing correctly between the first two. Is that is that the sort of the thinking there? Yeah, so we can we eventually, so I'm only working with artificial flowers at the moment, but the, the end-term goal is to be able to use real flowers and manipulate the gardens to have plants that we want pollinated. Oh, look, it's fantastic stuff. And uh, how do you get those bees to cooperate? Um, we do a lot of training. So bees are a lot like dogs in the sense that you can train them with food. So I spend a lot of time outdoors just getting bees to fly into a box and then onto the flowers that we're using and get them to, used to these artificial flowers, which is really fun. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's got to be a YouTube video of that. And if you haven't done it yet, put it up. I want to see you training the bees. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> Caitlin, thanks so much for being on Einstein and GoGo. Uh, next up is Siobhan O'Donovan from the University of Adelaide. Good morning, Siobhan. How are you going? Good morning, and thank you for having me and including me in this incredible lineup of researchers. Feel <laughs> yeah, very privileged. They, they are. They're a great group. Uh, I know you guys have been getting to know each other over the last twenty-four hours too. Now, you work on an area that I, I suppose a lot of people think think about all the time, but not in this level of detail. And that's the sort of patterns you see in terms of fatalities with car accidents, and then sort of working out some of the characteristics of those those collisions. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. Yes, so it's not really the best topic for a dinner party, uh, but I do look at um, the fatal injury patterns of motor vehicle occupants. And so it's actually a retrospective study on um, the South Australian population. And um, so I look at kind of the changing patterns of fatal injury motor vehicle occupants, as well as kind of the emerging trends, but also those persisting trends, you know, despite our safety countermeasures, what injuries, fatal injuries are still occurring. Hmm. And, and what sort of things do you, do you see? Because our cars and so forth are so safe these days. I mean, there's so many more features for safety. What sort of patterns are you seeing? Exactly. Um, so that's kind of the point. I mean, our fatality rate has decreased. And so every fatality now is really important to actually research. We're still seeing a lot of head injuries that remains the um, primary um, mm -hmm. fatal injury. Uh, but we also have um, kind of other associated injuries and a lot of multiple trauma. As our cars have got safer, we're actually seeing a lot more severe injuries and um, that's reflected in, in all the fatalities. Oh, right. I hadn't really thought about that, the idea that we, we survive more, um, but we end up pretty busted up like you know we we get out yeah. of it alive but pretty busted up that's um yeah yeah i hadn't really thought about that that's that's super interesting uh you're safe over there in adelaide yes we are now slowly coming out of lockdown but we're having a thunderstorm at the moment oh. so well that's all the yeah, thunderstorms are always fun though you know you, you can have a bit of fun there well stay in your house stay safe and uh, thanks so much for being part of einstein and go go today siobhan Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. Next up is Daisy Spark from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Good morning, Daisy. Good 
Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to talk to you. I, I think uh, your area is so interesting to me, this idea of the sorts of treatments, drug treatments we use for schizophrenia and just how, how effective they are. How specific are those treatments to individuals? Oh, Daisy, can you hear me I'm there? To treat. Yes, can you hear me? Oh, sorry, you dropped out for a sorry. second there. Yep, go ahead. Can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Yep, we're good. Okay, um, yeah, so we've got one uh, major class of drugs to treat schizophrenia, um, and they're antipsychotics, and they only really treat uh, one aspect of the disease. Uh, so there's all these other symptoms that are correlated with functional outcome and how well individuals <clears throat> with schizophrenia can integrate in society um, and we have no treatment for these these aspects of the disease. Mm. And so you're, you're looking at how how this would you know you're measuring this now in some some uh, rodent models. How is that playing out? How do you determine the impacts of the drugs in the rodent models? Yes, yeah, so it's really difficult because schizophrenia is a disorder that's um, experienced by humans only. So mm. it's really hard to kind of uh, recapitulate something that. Uh, rodents don't experience, which is what we need to test the drugs on. Um, so we have a lot of different behavioural correlates of human symptoms, um, but we've seen that over the past uh, close to 70 years of schizophrenia drug discovery that these correlates are quite poor um, indicators of uh, how a drug will function in humans. So there's a lot of different drugs that go through these rodent models um, and they look like they're going to be the next blockbuster drug but then we put them into humans in clinical trials and they just don't do what we think that they're going to do. Yeah I mean I, I can't imagine how you would go about mimicking asking a person how they feel and how the drug's affecting them versus doing that in the road and that's probably just not possible is it? Yeah so with um, I guess one of the most uh, well-known symptoms of schizophrenia is these hallucinations mm. and delusions. Obviously, we can't ask a mouse if they're experiencing these kind of um, things, but we use uh, increases in locomotor activity as a kind of correlate for those symptoms, which you can see there's quite a big disconnect between having paranoid ideations and just moving a lot in an open arena. Yeah. Well, look, it's very interesting work. Thanks, Daisy. Uh, great to hear from you. Thanks, Shane. All right. Next up, number five is Lindsay Joe. Good morning, Lindsay. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me on the show. Look, it's great to talk to you. We, uh, you're, you're in an area that I've looked into a lot over the years and this whole thing around premature birth and how it affects the brain and all the various things that can come of that. In fact, we had a guest on talking about cerebral palsy specifically just a, a few weeks back. But you're looking at the use of stem cells to um, presumably treat this. Tell us about that. Yes, that's right. So um, as you mentioned, uh, premature birth is you know, a significant issue in that it's the leading cause of uh, brain injury for uh, children and a leading cause of cerebral palsy as well. And we're investigating the use of st stem cells from the cord blood as a possible preventative or even curative treatment. So there's a great group at the Hudson Institute at Monash who have investigated this in the preclinical setting and have found that the, these stem cells seem to have an anti-inflammatory and a neuroprotective effect on the preterm brain. And so we are now for the first time in the world translating this over to a clinical trial in preterm babies where we'll be collecting the baby's own cords using their own cells and giving it to them to try and protect their brains because we know that it's such a high-risk time for these tiny babies and we're hoping to be able to improve the outcomes for them. Yeah. There are so many different conditions that can come from you know, preterm births. Is the idea that this would help all of them simultaneously? I mean, and I know so many of them are related to the brain. 
We are specifically looking at the brain, but there are other groups, um, both within our institution and overseas, who are looking at using it for other conditions, such as the lungs. We know that preterm babies have a lot of difficulty with chronic lung disease. So it is, we're looking at the brain, but it probably does have applications elsewhere as well. Mm. Oh, look, fascinating stuff. Lindsay, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you. Right, folks, we're getting there. We're, uh, we're what, we're five down and 15 or so to go. Uh, next up is Yael Roger from Monash University. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming online. Now, you run a daisy matching service and you're going to try and save some species. You wouldn't tell me more than that. Um, so <laughs> now you've got to fess up. What is this daisy matching service and does it involve Tinder? Oh, um, well, we all know how hard it can be to find a compatible mate in this world. But trust me, it's far more difficult when you're a plant and you can't move around easily. So I work with a species of grassland daisy called button wrinklewort, and it's endangered in Australia. It's only found in a few small isolated patches in Victoria and East New South Wales. And it's also quite interesting because it has a self-incompatible mating system, which means that it avoids inbreeding quite well, but it also means it can't just mate with anyone around. Mm. And it's when you are a threatened species and you have a small you have small isolated populations it's really important to make sure that you have enough genetic diversity to persist in the long term so my phd is about analyzing the genetics of the remaining populations of the species across its distribution and trying to figure out which plants we can cross to get the best results in terms of fitness and genetic diversity. Yeah. Uh, presumably at some stage, do you have to teach insects this information as well? Because uh, they're the ones who are going to you know, spread this, spread the pollen and, and keep things going. I mean, how important is it that the rest of the natural world sort of gets this need and these specific patterns that you're looking for? Well, unfortunately, we can't rely <clears throat> too much on the pollinators because this species is pollinated by just your common bee species. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking more about if we want to reestablish a population, say in Victoria, in order to have you know more plants in the future, which plants can we put in there so that the pollinators can spread um, the pollen around them in, in a way that we want? Right. So, yeah, so you've got to set, the, set up the system artificially and then just let them do what they naturally do. Uh, yeah. Without discrimination, I suppose they just they, they just uh, choose yeah. what they want. Yeah, look, it's, it's fascinating yeah. stuff. Um, thanks so much, uh, Yale. It's uh, really interesting to hear that going. I, I suppose if we don't um, take the realm uh, the helm with some of this stuff, we're not going to be able to save some of these species. Thanks for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Next up is Alison Campbell from the University of Sydney. Good morning, Alison. Good morning, Shane. It's great to be here. Thanks for chatting to us. Uh, now, you are working in the area of organic solar cells, which I find um, fascinating. I've been following this for many years. And I think, did, correct me if I'm wrong, did some of this stuff start off with frogs from South America? Oh, gee, that's an interesting story. I have to look into that. Um, I haven't gotten that far. Oh, this is uh, a long time ago. It could <laughs> be my, my memory failing. Um, so tell us, what are you doing with, um, with solar cells that are made from organics? Because these are, these are non-silicon-based solar cells. Yeah, that's right. So when I say organic, I'm not talking about uh, a material that you can buy from the health food shop. I'm talking about <laughs> something that uh, is made from the element carbon instead of silicon 
which is uh, what you'll normally see at the moment with solar panels that are around, they'll be silicon. And the thing that's really exciting about organic as an alternative is that we can make them flexible, we can make them lightweight. Um, they also have a much lower energy payback time, which is very important because with renewable energy, uh, it's really great to have a energy uh, source that can be made with a small amount of energy, right? Otherwise, it defeats mm. the point of making it renewable. Yeah. What, what are the downsides of uh, the organics with comparison to the, the silicon sort of base stuff? It's still quite a new technology. Um, so that means that scientists are not able to get the same amount of efficiency out of organic solar cells as silicon at the moment. Uh, but that's what we're working on. Uh, another issue is stability. We want to make sure that they uh, stay able to collect light for a long amount of time. And that's something that scientists are working on. And so one of the ways that we're working on this is looking at new materials that have an increased stability in terms of uh, their photostability. So when they're absorbing light, they're not going to degrade. And that's a really important area yeah. that needs work. Yeah. Do, do, do they tend to be materials that you're sort of, as, as we would do in the areas of antibiotics and so forth, pulling out of nature? Or are these organic materials that you're sort of more manufacturing in lab? Yes, they're very synthetic. Uh, someone is making them for us to study. Uh, that's a really great thing about science is that you can work together um, and use each other's strengths. So I'm the experimentalist that puts those materials into the solar cell and see mm -hmm. how's it, how it performs. Um, and so we have some really great partnerships with people that are making these in the lab uh, for their PhD. Yeah. Yep. Uh, look, fantastic stuff, Alison. You must be happy that you're working on a, a small problem like, uh, you know, dealing with climate change. At least it's something you can, uh, you, you know, most PhD students, I suspect, when they tell their family what they're doing, they'll be like, yeah, really? But you can tell, yeah, saving the planet, parents. It's all good. I'm doing my best. I'm very <laughs> proud to work on it. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today. Next up is Rose McCauley from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Rose. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having us today. Now, uh, we I guess we don't know what this is like in Melbourne anymore, or we're coming back into the idea of being able to wander outside and do things. But you you look at how we interact with our urban environments and, and how we can sort of use, use those environments with regards to mindfulness and so forth. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So, so you're right. COVID-19 has put a real spotlight on the importance of public green space for our health and well-being. And I am researching the psychological benefits and well-being benefits of green spaces. And as you say, I'm focusing on mindfulness as an engagement strategy so that individuals can um, mindfully engage with and pay attention to nature in the urban context to improve well-being and build on these psychological benefits. Um, so the urban context, is is interesting in this in this environment in this year in particular especially in melbourne and hopefully these types of strategies can be useful for yeah. people's well have, have you seen a a difference i mean i remember just recently i was walking down there a nearby creek near my home and this thing went overhead this this giant metal bird that made this noise that was offensive to me i hadn't heard this noise in quite a while uh, presumably you know all these sort of the, the, more, the noises of the city that um, have been turned off for a while are coming back now, especially in Melbourne. Have you seen changes as a result of how people interact with nature with regards to that? Sure. So, um, I mean, this year, anecdotally, we've all noticed that people are spending more time in green spaces. 
Um, but there's also been some research um, that has shown people are valuing green spaces um, more at this time for their health and well-being. And, and the, the impact of the city and the urban stress in the CBD, for example, has changed a lot this year. Um, but I think there are other stresses, for example, the stress of the pandemic that can impact someone's engagement with nature. Mm. And so we're coming back to mindfulness um, in those experiences where ideally people can pay attention to really what's going on around them and try to detach a little bit from those stresses that might not be city noise that may be more psychological. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's certainly it's certainly something we should pay attention to uh, in preparation for these many, many interviews. This morning, I sat outside and just looked at the clouds in the sky for a little while just to find my centre. It's an important thing to do. Rose, thanks so much for being on Einstein and Go Go today. Thanks so much, Shane. Next up is Anna Ross from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working in an area where I have some very strong feelings, and that is the so the way in which news coverage uh, deals with mental illness. And am I allowed to word, use the, the term disgusting, or is that going too far at the moment? I mean, where, where are we at with this? Because we so often link mental illness to crime when we see it on the news. Absolutely. It is, it is commonly linked. Um, and unfortunately, the side effect of that can be that this can influence attitudes um, of the public towards illness, so increasing stigma and discrimination. Um, but what we've found is that there isn't a lot of guidance about how to report on situations um, that do involve um, mental illness and an incident of violence or crime. So we know that um, all these incidents are really rare. We know that the vast majority of violence does occur in the community outside of mental illness. Mm. However, there, there is a very, a very, very small um, relationship usually between untreated psychosis um, and violence. Um, and when these incidents do occur, we often see, um, you know, quite a strong link to mental illness as being a cause where we know that there can also be like other causal factors are more likely to explain that behaviour as well. Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do um, is, I guess, kind of plug this gap um, and provide guidance on how to report in a more balanced um, and fair way. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really important issue and I think um, it's an uphill battle, no doubt. But um, it, besides going through the sort of major news services, are there other ways to achieve that with the gap? Because they're not the only controllers of information anymore as they once were. There are so many different options now for getting information out there. How else would you go about it? Absolutely. Uh, here in Australia, we're very lucky. We have a, um, a service a specific organisation um, for looking at, um, at improving and monitoring media reporting of mental illness and suicide. Uh, so they're called Mindframe um, and they have been big collaborators in this project. Um, and now that we're on the, to the implementation phase of we've developed guidelines and we're now, you know, trying to get them out and increase uptake, um, we have their support um, in doing this because Mindframe have been instrumental um, in improving um media reports of suicide we've seen big improvements over the last two decades and mind frame of being behind that wow look it's it's such fascinating stuff i'm going to keep watching anna because this is something i'd love to see a huge transformation over the next well i'd say uh two weeks but i'm going to say decade because i think that's probably more achievable but uh we we certainly need to do a lot in this space thanks so much for chatting to us today thanks jane next up is sam harvey from latrobe university uh good morning sam 
Good morning, Shane. Good now, I'm immediately everyone. nervous, Sam, because I know you're a speech pathologist, and that means I'm going to start speaking in very, very bad ways, and you'll pick me up on it. This happens every time I have a speech pathologist on the show. Not uh, at all. It's your usual dulcet tone. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Um, now, you work in the area of aphasia. Before we get into the, the details of treatment and so forth, give us a quick rundown on what's happening with someone who has aphasia. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Um, Look, aphasia is a term that many of your listeners probably haven't encountered before. It's a term that means um, a person has trouble communicating using speech, uh, understanding speech, reading and writing. And this trouble has been caused by damage to the brain. It's usually caused by something like a stroke. It can affect people at all stages of life. Um, Right now in Australia, there's about 120,000 people living with aphasia. And yet, nine out of ten people has never heard of it. Mm. Uh, so we have a big silent problem. And and what are the symptoms of aphasia? Is it is it a difficulty basically getting the ideas from the brain literally out in in speech? Yeah, that's a really good example. And we are so fortunate to be able to share our ideas in this way. But mm. a person with aphasia might have trouble ordering a coffee in a cafe or yeah. paying a bill online or you know listening to the radio. That might be you know, too hard for too someone hard. who experiences aphasia. Yeah. yeah. Now, you're working on the idea of sort of how, how much personalized aspects there are to the treatment. Tell us about that quickly. That's right. Uh, I'm a speech therapist. We know there are lots of different treatments available that can help to um, re-establish and maintain effective communication after aphasia strikes. And we know that we need to personalize these treatments, but we don't know how much treatment a person needs to get the best recovery. So my team at the Aphasia Research Centre at La Trobe University is directly uh, investigating how much treatment uh, a person requires to get the the best recovery from aphasia. Mm, Excellent. Uh, Presumably, just before we go, that must involve a lot of interaction with families and friends as well because they must be the ones who see a lot of the symptoms most, yeah? Well, absolutely, yes. The, the study that I'm doing will be directly, uh, it's an online study we're recruiting right now, um, and it's directly for people with aphasia. Um, but absolutely, communication is a two-way street, and uh, lots of the work at the Aphasia Centre at uh, La Trobe University is addressing many of the challenges uh, associated with having aphasia. Fantastic. Thanks, Sam. Great work. Thanks very much, Sam. Next up is Josh Heary from La Trobe University as well. Josh, good morning. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you deal with aspects of hip joint damage and uh, what we see in MRIs. And one of the things that I suppose we, we don't normally think about is you know, all this pain that people get associated with various conditions and whether or not something like an MRI connects well to that pain and, and how well that connection is. Tell us about what you're looking into there. Yeah, so I suppose I'll just give you a bit of a context of why we are doing our research. So in physiotherapy or sports medicine, we often use MRI or X-ray to, I suppose, uh, to understand or to try and uh, to clinically reason why a person would be having hip pain. Um, but one of the problems that we face is that the MRI report comes back with things like um, cartilage damage or swelling, small tears within the joint. And then we need to uh, try and work out are these things actually related to their clinical presentation. And the biggest problem we're facing at the moment is that we know from research around the world that when these findings are present in someone with hip pain, they can often be the catalyst for that person to undergo really expensive and invasive medical procedures such as keyhole surgery. Mm. Um, And I suppose if we take a step back, uh, there's been a a lot of research um, in other areas of the body such as the spine, the neck, the shoulder and the knee that shows that these so-called abnormal findings are really actually seen to a similar degree in people without pain but the hip is sort of the final frontier and with this big drive in surgeries around the world we need to actually understand are these things abnormal are they 
existing along a sort of a normal spectrum of age, the person's sex or the activity they've undertaken through their life. Yeah, I suppose it's really hard for us to connect um, someone's experience there with pain to to these measurements too. I mean, because everyone has a, a different uh, mindset of how much pain they're experiencing, yeah? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult task and there's um, a lot of limitations around these what we call imaging biomarkers, so the MRI findings and how we can actually relate them to someone's symptoms. Um, the problem that we face is that I think uh, in society we have this uh, belief that when we see something on Im- imaging, it's the sort of the gold standard and that mm. automatically means that it's related to the symptoms that I'm experiencing around my hip or knee or spine. But when you delve into the literature, we, we know it's, it's, it's not that simple. Yeah, I remember once getting a MRI because I damaged a finger, and and the the sports doc said to me, "He goes, oh, you got a little bit of arthritis creeping in there." I'm like, "What?" And uh, no pain, no problem at all. It was just you know, it, so much extra information in these scans that are hard to interpret. So it can be it can be tricky. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real mindful for clinicians, but all, probably more so, and it's the patient that needs yeah. to have all the information. Um, um, given to them, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Josh, thanks so much uh, for being on Einstein and Go Go today. Thanks for having me. We're doing the 20 PhDs in 20 minutes, the fourth one we've done over the last year or so, and uh, we're up to number 12, actually. And on the line now, we have Jasmine Ship from Deakin University. Good morning, Jasmine. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's such an honor to be here today. Oh, it's an honor to be speaking to you, actually, because <laughs> you work you. in this amazing area around type 1 diabetes and this idea of people um, essentially using or building their own artificial pancreas systems. Tell us about that. That's absolutely right. So people are using existing diabetes technology that can measure their glucose levels and they can give them insulin and combining with brand new software that allows us to all talk to each other and automates the insulin delivery. So people with type 1 diabetes have to make about 180 decisions each day about their management. This can be really tough and really overwhelming. So they found a way to make this easier using this brand new technology. Yeah, and type 1 diabetes, correct me if I'm wrong, you you get that when you're very young, right? That's actually... um, you can get one when you're young, but it's actually a slight misconception. You can okay. get it as an adult as well. So right. that people can get um, a type 1 diabetes in adulthood too, but it is often associated with, um, with, with, child, with childhood. Yeah, so you don't want kids having to make 180 decisions a day, That's, uh, <laughs> and it's hard for their parents when they're not with them. And uh, how many people are using these technologies around Australia? Around Australia, I would estimate maybe around 100 or 200 or so. And currently in the world, I think the last update I saw was 1,800 people using this. And um, just previously on your point about um, parents with children with diabetes, they're part of the, the, the We Are Not Waiting community, the community that helped create this technology because they cared a lot about their children, wanted to make sure they were safe when they went with them. And they developed this um, technology that allowed... They developed a technology called Night Scout that allowed artificial pancreases to be born. Yeah, I love this idea because I know many times I've looked at healthcare and it seems to be so far behind in the use of basic technologies that we would use otherwise when we're ordering food from delivery or all the things where we've moved on. But in healthcare, that doesn't happen. And I've said for a while, it's only a matter of time before the consumers take hold. And it seems like this is is happening. Is Is there a lot of money behind it or is it something that's sort of grassroots level? No, like you said, this is a community-led initiative. So people are actually giving away this technology for free. These are it's a very generous online community who just want to help other people affected by and living with diabetes. Wow, it's fantastic stuff, uh, Jasmine. Thanks so much for talking about that, and good luck with that research. It really is an interesting area. Thanks for having me. Next up is Joanna Bayer from the University of Melbourne and the Origin Youth uh, Health Centre. Good morning, Joanna. 
Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to talk to you. Um, you're looking at the sort of way in which depression um, presents itself and so forth and, and how we, the sort of symptoms that we have. And then, you know, again, with that issue of individualized treatment, tell us, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, what few people know is that depression is actually very, very, a very, very heterogeneous disorder. So just to give an example, um, in a sample of 3,000 individuals with depression, um, researchers found over 1,000 different symptom profiles wow. of how depression could be expressed. And this makes it, like, as you can imagine, very hard to treat because what works for one person might not work for the other. Um, so in depression research, there has in the previous years actually been a search for a biomarker. So some characteristic on your body that can be used um, by its presence or absence to, to guide treatment or even to predict um, the response to a certain medication or, or behavioral um, therapy. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, um, for, for depression, this, the focus for this biomarker has been on the brain. And this, but this is also an issue because the brain is not at all a static organ. And what has been done in order to find this biomarker is just taking a lot of MRI brain scan mm. and then averaging them and trying to make predictions from that. Yeah. And of course, you can imagine this this doesn't work. Yeah. So what basically what I've done in my research is um, I've taken into account this aging and changing factor of the brain. And I've created using machine learning techniques on, on 10,000 brain scan, um, something what you can describe as a growth chart of the brain. So basically, I've mapped the variation across the lifespan, like the changing brain onto age. And um, so now, as in a growth chart, as you would say with a child, like a child is tall or short for his or her age, we can now make this statement about yep. a person. Wow. And now we can look how people with depression deviate from this normative growth. Yeah. And this gives us a way more fine-grade measure to correlate with any symptom profiles or to predict response to treatment. Sounds good yeah. to me, Joanna. Thanks so much. And I, I hope that we move, as we did with autism, from it being one classification to a spectrum of uh, sort of classification. Hopefully we'll get there with depression. I haven't heard people talk about that, but it sounds like that's what we need. Thanks so much for being on Einstein yeah. & Go Go. Yeah, thank you. Next up is Martha Blank from the St. Vincent's Institute for Medical Research in the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. I'm almost scared to ask about this, but you, you work on the idea of sort of weak bones and how they break and that um, sort of the need for maintenance around, con you know, continuing maintenance around the things that keep our bones strong. Tell us about what you're doing. Exactly. So basically, I'm just, just trying to understand what makes bone strong. Um, and as you can imagine, there, there are a couple of factors, which includes the geometry of the bone, the length, um, the thickness of the bone wall. And something that I'm really interested in is the material of the bone. So this has been uh, quite a new field, actually, because um, the improvement of our technologies are driving us to understand bone tissue a little bit better. Um, and um, if you can imagine bone... Um, is, is quite a heterogeneous uh, tissue and it consists out of collagen and mineral. Um, and the collagen gives it kind of like a flexibility, whereas the mineral gives it its stiffness. So mm -hmm. you can also kind of like see if, if one of those phases is kind of like off or a little bit too much, um, it impairs bone strength uh, dramatically. Yeah. Uh, look, it's, it's something that uh, I suppose we all worry about, but we're living longer and longer and longer and, and bone strength is so important. How much does it, uh, how important is it that we also have good muscle mass and strength um, supporting our bones or like, do we need both at the same time? Yes, definitely. So muscles are also very, very important and uh, especially um, considering muscles um, to be active um, is really, really important because um, um, 
the majority of the bone cells are sitting within the bone and mm -hmm. they are kind of like mechanosensors and they're driving bone remodeling throughout your whole life, uh, which means your bones get resorbed, but also build newly throughout your whole life. And um, that also contributes to a healthy and uh, optimal bone strength. Yeah, look, Martha, it's great hearing you talk about it this way because I think it, it gives us all this mindset that bones are dynamic and that they keep changing throughout our life. Whereas we kind of, many of us have this idea that's just a static thing and it's left over when you die as a skeleton. That it doesn't change, but such a dynamic part of our body. Thanks so much for being on Einstein the Gogo, Martha. Thank you for having me. Next up is Jomo Gigotho from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Jomo, good morning. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Now, you, uh, I suppose because of your background in Kenya, you, you've got a particular interest in tropical diseases, but you're working um, on malaria and looking at how we can improve some of the activity of the drugs we use. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my dad's actually from Kenya and I lived over there for a little bit during my childhood and I've had it a couple of times. So uh, once I got to uni and found a researcher that was looking at um, malaria, I decided to join the team and um, one of our main issues with malaria is that all the parasites are becoming resistant to our current medicines. Mm. Um, and I'm a medicinal chemist, so I'm working on a new drug to try and combat this and um, kill those parasites that are resistant to what we've already got. Yeah. What's the plan with that one? Does it uh, stop the parasite getting into the cells? Does it kill parasite beforehand? There's, there's so many different ways to skin this cat and they're all, they're all struggling, I suppose. What, what's your method? Yeah, so at the moment, we're actually not entirely sure how it works. Um, that's another PhD student's uh, effort at the moment. Mm. Um, but we do know that it kills parasites that are resistant. So um, that's kind of enough for us to work on at the moment. And I'm just trying to make it better in that regard and also trying to make it better inside a person as well. Yeah. And do you, do you have any concerns about the, the safety of these particular techniques at this time or have the, that stage already been passed? Um, so some of our preliminary data in human cells looks okay, but we've still got to do a bit more work because it's still very early days to um, see all the different cell lines that are possible. But at the, at the moment, it's pretty encouraging yeah. in what we've seen. Yeah, excellent. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gogo. It's such an important area. I think, um, you know, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but the number of deaths a year and so forth and the economic impact and impact on people's lives from these conditions are extraordinary. So uh, keep up the good work and good luck with that new new techniques. Cool, thank you. Next up is Jodie Pastana from the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Jodie. Morning, Shane. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, now, you look at something that I find really fascinating, and that's the idea of how we treat anxiety, in particular in um, mothers who get the onset of anxiety post having birth. I understand it's about one in five have that problem. And whether or not, um, or how they, I, I suppose, respond to the use of Valium and your... I want to say you're giving Valium to rats to investigate this, yeah? Yep, so that's one of my studies I've looked at, um, specifically how mothers respond to Valium. Um, so this is a really important area of research because, like you said, one in five women will actually experience an uh, onset of anxiety after giving birth. And these women are being prescribed medications to treat their anxiety that haven't been tested in them mm. and therefore aren't really tailored to their unique needs. So these drugs are mostly tested in males, um, and when they have been tested in females, they've been tested in non-mother female animals or young women who aren't yet mothers. And this is a problem because motherhood leads to these long-lasting changes in brain regions that these drugs actually act on. So one of my experiments actually found that um, motherhood leads to changes in the response to the anti-anxiety drug known as Valium, but as you mentioned. Um, and, yeah, so I found that compared to non-mother rats, mother rats 
need a smaller dose of Valium to actually reduce their anxiety. It's incredible stuff. Uh, let me, I mean, this is a question you've, I'm sure you've thought of, but how is it that these drugs are legally available to be used in, in new mothers, uh, which is a class of humans, let's say, that they've never been tested on? This seems absurd if they affect that part of the brain that is differentiated in those individuals. Yeah, absolutely baffles me, Shane. That's why I'm doing this research. Um, and considering that 80% of Australian women are going to become a mother um, after the age of 15, it's really alarming that these drugs haven't been tested um, in mothers and I think even more broadly in females in general. Most of our drugs and diseases are based on male models, um, but females aren't little men. We're our own people, so it's really important to yeah. research yeah, it blew me away when I found out that most of the, the drugs that we use for women with regards to reproduction and menstruation and so forth are, are trialled in male mice um, because there's only one one type of uh, mouse that menstruates. I thought, well, hang on a minute, that <laughs> doesn't seem right. Uh, look, it's it's very important work, Jodie. Good luck with it and um, slam those outcomes home hard on people so they know what they should be doing. Will do. Thanks, Shane. Thanks so much. Next up is Yinkai Wei from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Good morning, Yinkai. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You work in an area which I would put in the almost impossible class uh, to do, and that is to try and come up with some detection device to actually quantify how much pain people are feeling. I mean, first of all, uh, how do we do it normally? How do we normally compare people's pain? Well, so normally when you experience pain, you go to the doctors, they often ask you from a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain intensity? And to me, it's very subjective because everyone feels pain very differently. So what we wanted to do is actually combine neuroscience with some material science um, to develop a pain detection device in a size about a USB stick. Mm -hmm. And what we is to actually measure how much pain intensity that we can see through the device. Yeah, it, it seems incredible to me. I mean, when you talk about the pain scale, I know uh, my partner and I have joked about this and we uh, we sort of said, you know, a nine is kind of like being mauled by a bear perhaps. And, you know, like humans like points of comparison. So if we have no points of comparison, it's very hard to do. So what sort of things would this device actually measure in the body though? Yeah, so what we want to achieve, um, the easiest example is um, like a blood sugar monitor. So mm. with a prick of blood into the device, it will give out uh, intensity for um, doctors to sort of guide the clinical practice. Yeah. And are there parts of the body where this just won't work? I mean, presumably in, in the brain and so forth, uh, I can think of things like migraines and so forth, where the, the pain is very sophisticated and detailed. Um, is, is likely there's parts where you just won't be able to do this or is it body wide? Yeah. So at the moment, we try to use different pain models and we try to see if there's any difference in the pattern that we can detect. So far from the preliminary data, there are a few different pain types that we actually can see different patterns. Mm. So we just need to do more tests to see if for the brain pain, there's yeah. any well, good luck because anyone who's been in severe pain, nothing pisses them off more than seeing the, the doctor come in and ask for their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. And my advice to everyone there is always say 25. You'll get, you'll get served quicker. Uh, that may not be true. Thank you, Yinkai. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, next up is Megan Griffiths from the Biomedicine Discovery Institute down at Monash University. Good morning, Megan. 
Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to you. Uh, now, you uh, are dealing with an issue which I think is, I mean, it's very serious and we don't hear about it much. And that's the, the sort of story around infertility in uh, young cancer survivors. I mean, often the focus is on the cancer and surviving that individual in themselves. But what are we doing about the infertility that can sometimes come from those treatments? Yeah, so obviously it's a huge concern for young cancer survivors. Uh, but we've, at the moment, uh, we have uh, things like egg freezing and uh, embryo freezing that mm -hmm. allows young cancer patients to kind of preserve their fertility before they have their treatment. Uh, but the uterus has kind of been ignored in all of this. Mm. And a, a big reason for that is uh, because of how regenerative it is. So every month, every woman undergoes a period and the lining of her uterus is shed and regenerated. And so people have kind of assumed for a long time that any damage that might be done by cancer treatments would likely be shed and regenerated with healthy tissue. Uh, but in my PhD, uh, using mice, we've shown that after radiotherapy, when healthy eggs and healthy embryos are transferred into the uteri or the uterus of these mice, that they experience pregnancy loss. And so we're kind of demonstrating for the very first time that the uterus can actually sustain permanent long-term damage. And this can have serious implications for cancer survivors. Yeah. Does that mean, uh, uh, well, I'm trying to think of what the outcome is for this, but I mean, people have still got to have these treatments, obviously, because they're life-saving. Yeah. But I suppose that just means at least some clarity around them having to utilize their eggs in a surrogate or other options. Or is this something we can do to fix that uterine damage? Yeah, so that's the long-term goal ultimately is to be able to hopefully with all the uh, new drugs that are coming onto market constantly that one day there will be something that we could potentially administer prior to treatment and just after treatment that will kind of help protect from this damage. Um, so that's the end goal so that these patients are still able to uh, carry their own children. Yeah, uh, Megan, fascinating work and really important. I, I know um, I've come across this topic a few times before, especially in in relative, you know, teenagers and so forth where uh, the yeah. decisions aren't necessarily their own either around some of yeah, this stuff. Exactly. It's very tricky. So keep up the good work and thanks for being on Einstein and Gogo today. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, next is Kareem Mascuto from the University of Queensland. Good morning, Kareem. Hi, Shane. Morning. Good to talk to you. Now, uh, you're looking at people with back pain and not just the sort of normal pharmaceutical interventions that we use, but the importance of the human aspects of back pain care from clinicians. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So low back pain is extremely common. I'm sure that a lot of people listening today have low back pain. But contrary to what most people think, uh, low back pain cannot simply be understood or managed by only looking at bones, muscles, nerves or joints. Uh, so that's why my PhD, we're trying to explore this more human aspects of care, which means not only attending to the biological aspects, but also psychological, social, uh, interpersonal, emotional and, and so forth. Yeah. Presumably when you uh, find out that this is very important, which we, I'm, I'm sure we're all expecting it is, um, how do you get that back into the healthcare system? Because some of these things aren't trained into all of our healthcare workers, are they? Yeah, exactly. So that's what we are trying to explore. Uh, we're observing interactions, like real-life real interactions between clinicians and patients to look at what's missing and how we can actually develop recommendations uh, to enhance these uh, human aspects of care in practice. Mm. 
Yeah, look, it's 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 really interesting. And and do you you know when you're doing that, how much information do you get from the patient themselves? Like, is there any interaction with the patient with regards to their experiences, or are you just doing the observations? Actually, we don't have the information from the uh, patients that we are observing. But actually, in my PhD, we are collaborating with. Uh, people with lived experience with low back pain. So they actually are the experts in their own pain and they uh, kind of contribute to our findings. So the recommendations are not only take into consideration what researchers think, yeah. uh, but what that is important, but also what clinicians think and also what people with lived experience with low back pain think it is important to be implemented. Yeah, look, it's super important uh, as someone who's had it in the past and at the moment doesn't, but, you know, has gone through that low back pain area as a result of a bulge disc many years ago. I am very supportive of what you're doing because it's a a really devastating uh, scenario for people to have to go through that. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Shane. Next, next up is Leila Mizrati. Good morning, Leila. You're from the Swiss Seismological Service. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Um, or good night, actually. Yeah, good night. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, Zurich. <laughs> what is it like? Uh, you're in Zurich, so what's that? Like one fifty in the morning Almost or something? Almost two. Almost two o'clock. Yeah. Ah, it's not that yeah. late. Uh, heard that you people in Zurich party all night. Isn't that? Uh, it's normal. It's normal. Uh, you're a PhD student. You should be. Uh, you should be in bed by now, <laughs> sleeping. Well, not so. so much at the moment. <laughs> now you're working on earthquake forecasting. This sounds like an impossible feat. Um, tell us about what you're doing with regards to, in particular, aftershocks and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as you're saying, earthquake forecasting is not really easy. So what we're doing is not like saying. Um, tomorrow at five, there will be an earthquake in mm. an earthquake in this and this place, but rather like calculating probabilities. And um, so earthquakes trigger aftershocks, and then these aftershocks can trigger their own aftershocks and so on. And if we look, for example, at California, we see that um, actually over 90% of all the earthquakes that happen are triggered by an earlier one. So oh, wow. that means that we that we if we better understand these aftershock triggering behavior we will be really like sounds a bit boring how you're only forecasting aftershocks but in fact like most earthquakes are aftershocks yeah that's so interesting because i've always wondered how you determine what's a pre-shock an actual main quake and an aftershock until it's actually happened but it, is there a way to do that to work out is there anything different in the sort of waveform of the the vibrations and so forth that says this is a pre-major earthquake or this is a post-major earthquake Mm, not really. I mean, this really depends on your definition. There are some people saying, okay, um, the largest one is just always the main shock, yep. and then you define it that way. But then it's also a bit difficult to, to know then which one. Like sometimes if you have another large one, but kind of far away, it's not so sure. So there's not one way to determine um which earthquakes are now the foreshocks and the aftershocks. But there's a lot of different um, research going on that's looking at uh, kind of yeah, some properties in the statistical behavior of earthquakes. And if you then monitor that over time, you'd see, like there are different uh, mm. branches of re- research that yeah. point to, yeah, there may be some precursors, but there's 
not yeah. like one thing. Oh, look, it is right such now. a fascinating area. I will, I will admit somewhat embarrassingly to having the earthquake app on my phone, which I'm obsessed with, um, that tells you where all the earthquakes are all over the world at any given time. And, and this, this is such a fantastic area. And thanks so much coming all the way from Zurich uh, for this call. We really appreciate you staying up so late. It's great being, uh, having you on the line, Leila. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And finally, in our 20 and 20 group is uh, Gracie Finko. We're going all the way over to uh, the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Good morning, Gracie. Good evening. How are you, Yeah, I was going to say, I should say good evening to you as well. It's uh, well, it a Saturday evening for you. Um, now, you work in an area which I find is fascinating with all the new technologies coming out, and that's how people with leg amput- amputations experience falls after they've had prosthetics um, put on and how important, the, the, I guess, the balance and the symmetry is with regards to their walking. Tell us about that work. Yeah, so by walking symmetry, I mean things like uh, step lengths and step widths, so how long, how wide the steps are, and how much the ankles, the knees, and the hips are moving when an individual walks. Mm. So our muscles and our bones uh, and our legs influence the way that we walk every day, but after someone has a leg amputation, their muscles and bones have changed in that leg. And this can create differences um, basically between their prosthetic leg and their intact leg when they walk. And so minimizing these differences, or in other words, improving the walking symmetry between their prosthetic leg and their intact leg are really important goals for clinicians to get someone back to their new normal. And a lot of researchers have measured this before, but it's done in big labs with fancy equipment. But in in the clinic, there isn't an easy way to really measure walking symmetry or even really standards of how much is acceptable. And so we're essentially trying to bring the lab to the clinic by using technology similar to what's in your smartphone. So we think using wearable sensors in the clinic to monitor how someone is moving when they walk could potentially be a solution to this. Uh, look, this is just absolutely fascinating stuff to me, Gracie. I think uh, especially given how much of our body is used when we walk for balance and coordination and so forth. So presumably, just quickly, you're, you're looking at the whole body in this, in this imaging, aren't you? The whole thing, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So we would put different wearable sensors on um, basically people's trunk or their torso. Uh, And then also we would put them on their hips, their knees Mm -hmm. and their ankles. And so you have one um, one sensor that does this in your smartphone that kind of can basically tell you the difference of whether you're walking or running, or for instance, how many flights of stairs you've climbed per day. So your cell phone knows where it is in space. Um, but basically what we can do is we can put all of these sensors on people's limbs and their torso, and that gives us more detailed information about how they're moving. Oh, brilliant. Uh, Gracie, thanks so much for being uh, our final 20 and 20 member today on Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed listening to everyone's talks today. Triple R. Thank you for listening today. Thank you to the 20 and 20 participants to remind you that science is everywhere. And next week we have a huge show. We'll be talking for an hour to the great Tim Flannery after I have read his book. And uh, I hope you all get a very, very, very good uh, weekend ahead of you. And uh, I'm going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Uh, Cam and Matt are ready to go. Uh, Have a great Sunday, folks. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.